Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Sinjin Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name's Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Sinjin Group. And I'm super passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are, closing in on the end of season two. And my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Gihan Pereira, who is the author of Disruption by Design, Leading Change in a Fast-Changing World. Gihan is a futurist, conference speaker, author, and consultant who gives business leaders a glimpse into what's ahead and how they can become fit for the future. Since 1997, he's worked with leading thought leaders, change agents, business leaders, and entrepreneurs, helping them with their strategy for thriving in a fast-changing world. Forbes magazine rated him the number five social media influencer in the world and number one in Australia in his area of expertise. He has clients throughout Australia, as well as New Zealand, South Africa, the UK, Singapore, and the USA, and has written 11 other books. And he's always taken a lead in embracing emerging technologies and trends from his university thesis in robotics and artificial intelligence to leading a software development team building the infrastructure for the early internet, founding one of Australia's first web development companies in 1996. And on top of all that, he's a certified speaking professional, the only international recognised designation for professional speakers. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explored his book in great detail. I start off by asking Gihan why did he decide to write this book. We speak about how to look wider and further for opportunities and threats. We discuss a model called the Delphi Method and why it's important to lean in. And I finish the interview by asking Gihan about 90-day projects and mental contrasting. So keep listening. As always, really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Gihan Pereira, author of Disruption by Design, Leading Change in a Fast-Changing World. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Gihan, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Gihan Pereira? Yeah, thanks, Julian. Great to be here. So I'm a futurist. So I do a lot of work speaking at conferences, doing strategic planning with clients, looking at the future, running workshops. And I've been doing that for the last uh, seven or eight years, going back to almost 10 years now. And it's something I really like because I've always been interested in what's coming up in our future, not just technology-wise, but what it means for people. And so it's nice now that that's part of my day job rather than just something I was tinkering with on the side. Great. And so we're here to talk about uh, your book, Disruption by Design, Leading Change in a Fast-Changing World. Why did you decide to write it? That's interesting because a few years ago, everybody was talking about disruption, hear about these disruptors like Uber and Airbnb. And then it seemed to be that people were getting tired of the, the subject. Uh, change hasn't stopped. So change is still happening and happening faster than ever before. And really, disruption is about change. And I was really interested to see that some people were still talking about disruption, but almost in the sense that there's nothing you can do about disruption. It's coming for you. So you'd better just 
you know, be prepared because when it comes, that'll be the end of your industry, your life, your career, and so on. And and I just, just don't think that's the case. It's just not the case at all. Um, people can manage change and can deal with change. It's just that you need to do it differently now. And I often say that disruption and innovation are exactly the same thing. They're both about change. It's disruption when it happens to you, and it's innovation when you do it yourself. And it's the way that you think about change and the way that you behave when change is coming. There's lots of organizations who want to change, but they just don't know how to change in a way means that they'll be continue to be innovators rather than being disrupted. That's why I wrote the book, because it's all about change and I've called it disruption by design. And it's all about disrupting yourself. So making the change happen from the inside out rather than just sitting back helplessly for the disruption to happen from the outside in. So I want to start with a bit of an excerpt, if I can, uh, because when I started to, to, to read the book, uh, change is one of the things which often the organizations we work with are finding challenging. And it was, this excerpt is actually from the introduction. The one thing disruption and innovation have in common is they're both about change. Change is a natural part of life and everything we do is about change. Sometimes we create change, sometimes we respond smoothly to it, and sometimes it catches us by surprise and we react poorly. Change has always been with us, but the pace of change itself is changing and that catches people unawares. In the past, when change was slower, we had more time to see it coming, plan for it, and adapt to it. We could use the same strategies that always worked for us in the past and be confident they would still work. Even if they needed some tweaking, we had time to evolve and adapt. That's no longer the case. Change is coming thick and fast from every direction, and those old strategies don't work anymore. So in the work that you're doing, are you finding that organizations are still trying to deal with change in the old ways? Yeah, sadly, yes. And it's a, it's a really common trap for people to fall into because the more experienced you become, the more you build up these strategies. And there's, there's nothing wrong with the strategies. They used to work and they have, they have been what got you to where you are now. But they just don't work anymore because our world has changed. And it's not just the pace of change, but the kind of change. The world has changed so much that those old strategies don't work. But it's very easy to think that they worked for you in the past and they're going to continue to work in the future rather than saying, no, I need to let go of some of this stuff because it just just doesn't work anymore. Mm. So I want to start my uh, my deep dive into into your book, and I've got to commend you on the the, the visual aspect of the the book before we get into it. It's a, it's a it's a delightful book to to actually hold and full color, and it's it's a great looking book. And I want to start with chapter one, where you, you share this idea of opening up. Don't be constrained by the past when setting the course for the future. So can you share with the listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, and it's it's following on from what we've just been talking about, Julian, that what used to work doesn't work anymore. And there are companies and organizations who've got a lot of sunk costs, vested interests, they've built up these assets, these resources that have worked for them in the past, but sometimes they no longer assets. In fact, they might be liabilities, but they're, they're holding you back from the future. And this is what really happens with most organizations. When they start off, they're looking out at the world, they see a problem that needs to be solved, and so they build an organization that can solve those problems. Great. 
the organization grows, it thrives, everything goes really well until the world changes around them. And then they either have to decide that they're going to adapt and, and then thrive, or they won't adapt, in which case they'll nosedive. And this is why they get disrupted by startup companies, because the startup companies don't have a past to be constrained by. So when they come along, they look out at the world as it is now, not the way it used to be, but as it is now, and they see a new set of customers, a new set of problems, new ways of solving those problems. And so they build a business or an organization that's now aligned with what customers want now. So they're solving the problems that customers want now rather than trying to solve the problems that old customers wanted in the past. And that's what I mean by don't be constrained by the past. Look with fresh eyes at what's really out there rather than what you think is out there. Hmm. I suppose that that's a the perfect segue into something else which really resonated with me was this balance of what you think you know, and what you actually know. Are you able to talk a little bit to that? Yeah, that's right. So this this is the delusion zone. So we've always, like as we're growing up, the, the things that we think were true. Um, I'm not giving you any secrets here, Julian, but Santa Claus doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> but for most kids, we believed, we believed that Santa existed uh, for a while. So that was something that we thought we knew. And then, as we grew up, we realized that actually that's not true anymore. So that was the belief in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny and so on is part of our, was part of our delusion zone. Um, but now we think, well, that's okay. We were kids. That's the way we used to think. We're not kids anymore. So now we actually, everything that we believe to be true is true. That's what most people go through life thinking. They don't test whether, they, whether what they believe is actually true. And so there's this gap between what we think we know and what we actually know. And most people don't test what's in that gap. And uh, as a result of that, when the world has changed, things that used to be true aren't true anymore. There are all of these Santa Claus and Easter bunnies in our delusion zone. We just don't realize that they're there. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that we don't test that gap have you any ideas on how we how people should test that gap between what they know and what they think they know yeah absolutely and it takes a little bit of humility to do this because it's saying i should think maybe i wonder whether this is true or not and it's really starting off by being curious and going i wonder whether this is true whether this is still true and then looking for evidence so most of us go through life finding evidence that confirms what we already believe so we have this confirmation bias that says that anything that we believe if new evidence comes in that confirms that we accept it and if evidence comes in that rejects it uh, sorry, sorry that um, opposes it, then we reject it. And that happens subconsciously. But what if we were a bit more open and when somebody came in and uh, they suggested something or they expressed an opinion that was a little bit different from what we believe, instead of going, no, you're wrong, what if we said, hmm, that's interesting. So the more you can put yourself into environments that are testing your general beliefs, the, the better. Because, and if you're open to it, if you're curious about actually being willing to be wrong, um, this is the real value of diversity. And that's why diversity is so valuable now, because what you're doing is you're exposing yourself to people with different backgrounds, different ideas, different ways of thinking. And as a result of that, it might change your thinking and make your delusion zone a little bit smaller. You encourage the readers to see change as an opportunity to embrace, not a threat to avoid. How, how, how do we do that in a practical sense, I suppose, is my question to you. 
I always, I always remember this story that I read in the newspapers probably about five or six years ago. There's this cafe in, in Terrigal, just north of Sydney, uh, where the cafe manager, he came across something which happens in a lot of businesses that they get customers coming in and they're on their phone all the time. So he, there he is. He's got himself and his staff trying to take coffee orders and the customers lining up, but they're on their phone. So they're distracted. He doesn't get the chance to say hello to them and have his normal conversation. They're holding up other customers in the queue. And so what he decided to do was he put up a little sticky note on his cash register saying, if you're on the phone while at the counter, we're going to charge you 50 cents more. It's rude. All right, so, so he decided that he was going to um, act on the change. So he had to change something. He saw a change coming in from outside. He decided to act on it. But what he wanted to do was, taking, was take the cafe back to the way things used to be. He wanted people to put away their phones so they weren't distracted. They could serve, the staff could serve the customers efficiently. He could have the normal conversation with them. So he decided that change was happening, but he didn't like it. So he was resisting the change by getting back to the status quo. Embracing the change is taking the opposite approach. It's saying, looking at the change and saying, how can we take advantage of this? What can we do about this? And my local cafe here in Perth, uh, the owner, Nino, he did uh, something different because he saw exactly the same thing happening in his business. People were coming in, looking at their phones all the time, and they'd come in around in, in the morning on their way to work. So they were just checking their phone, checking the stock market, doing whatever. And he thought, what can we do about this? So he teamed up with one of those cafe loyalty card apps. And there's a lot of them now, but five years ago, it was a pretty innovative thing where you had this app, you uh, scan it with a uh, to a little tablet in his cafe and then you just earn loyalty points and then when you get, get you know, 10 points you can earn a free coffee um, you could load you could load your credit card uh, onto the onto your phone which everyone's doing now but at the time it was a novel idea that you could walk around without cash you didn't have those smartphones and smart watches with a credit card linked on there so you could walk around without cash and you could earn these points so nino saw exactly the same change happening from outside which was that Customers are coming in and they're on their phones all the time. But rather than seeing it as a negative thing that he needed to roll back, he looked at it as a positive thing that he could take his business forward. So that's what I mean by embracing change rather than resisting it or avoiding it. It's really about your perspective on it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and it's also about thinking about change as, as neither positive nor negative, but it just is. So just because there's change out there, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It doesn't even mean it's a good thing. It's just an opportunity. So you're looking for uh, you're looking for the opportunity that comes from change, rather than being really upset by it or being really exhilarated by it, but saying I'm going to be proactive and I'm going to do something about it. Hmm. Do you find that people attach the because what you just said then made me think about people attaching certain emotions to change and whether that's fear of the change or happy about the change, if they take the emotion out of it and just look at it the way you suggested it in that it just is, do you think that would help them deal with change more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. And it's easier said than done because we have those emotional attachments because we know what change has meant for us in our lives in the past. And there have been changes, big changes that have perhaps had really negative consequences. And there, there's some dramatic changes in personal lives, like deaths in the family, 
um, divorce, and some of those changes have been massive changes. And sometimes people remember those and they don't necessarily remember the change which they've been able to uh, embrace and look at the opportunity. Um, and it's also not so easy when you're in the change itself. When the change is happening around you, it's not easy to step back and have that external perspective. I remember many years ago when I was a software developer, I was working for a company that based in Perth, but I got sent to the UK for a couple of years because our software was bought by this UK company. And there was a team of four of us who got sent to the UK. I knew our company was struggling back in Perth because, you know, things were tough. And I was really looking forward to, at the end of my two-year stint there, coming back to Perth and then helping the company kind of you know, fight through and survive and thrive uh, through all the changes. But before I came back, like four weeks before we were all due to come back to Perth, we got an email in our inbox saying, oh, sorry, your position's been, been made redundant. Still remember that morning when I walked into work, luckily, uh, in some ways, luckily, I, w I had gone to the gym, so I was the last of the four people to come in. And some of our colleagues here said, oh, look, just be aware, there might be an interesting email in your inbox. And sure enough, it was there. So I, the, the blow was a little bit softened for me, uh, but still, it was pretty tough. There I was on the other side of the world, knowing that in four weeks' time, I didn't have a job to come back to. Um, and in that moment, it wasn't easy to say, here's change as an opportunity. Yeah. I looked at it um, after a couple of days and thought, well, actually, here's an opportunity now. Um, I was wondering what I could do to help the company back in Perth. Uh, I was thinking about moving to the US and working in software there. And as a result of that change happening, one of those options was taken away. So I then started looking at other opportunities available to me while I was in the UK and looking at jobs overseas and so on. And I was lucky that I was able to see the opportunity there, but it's not easy when you're right in the middle of the change, in the, in the middle of the storm. Hmm. And you, you write about this idea of scanning wide, and that is uh, around looking wider and further for these opportunities and threats. Well, why do you think people need to scan wide? Most of us don't look much further than what we already know. And the, we talked about change, but a lot of the change that's happening is coming from totally different areas. It's just, and for many businesses, the changes that are coming out of left field. So if you were in the taxi industry, there's no way that you would have predicted there would have been this tiny little startup company that was offering a cheaper luxury hire car service, which is kind of the way that Uber started uh, on the other side of the planet that could completely disrupt the industry um, here. Um, if you were in the accommodation industry, you probably wouldn't have predicted that these two guys who are offering their air mattresses for bed and breakfast, which is how Airbnb was named, um, at a, because there was a, this, all the hotel rooms in a city were booked for a conference, you wouldn't have been able to predict that they would have had such a huge impact on the whole accommodation industry. Um, you have to look wider because the changes that are coming may be from tiny little companies, they might be from outside the country, they might be from, definitely might be from outside your industry. And if you're not aware of some of these global macro changes that are coming, then then you're gonna be like driving along and you're sideswiped by somebody. You, if you've only got the narrow focus and you're just looking ahead or just looking behind in the rear view mirror, you never see the cars that are coming from the side. And that's why you really need to look wider. Um, so 
as much as it's important to look deeper, and I think that's a really good thing to do, but also expose yourself to wider thinking because that's where you'll see the, the real threats and also the real opportunities as well. I really liked when I started to read the, the section around customer impact because I think uh, customers are the lifeblood of any business and any leader should be thinking about their customers. So when you talk about this impact, well, what do you mean? Yeah, and I think this is the uh, one of the traps that many businesses fall into is when they start their business, they're really good at solving customer problems. But as the business grows, the, the, there's all these extra layers that get um, inserted between you and the customer. Um, so you get layers of management and staff that are now dealing with customers. You get layers of how uh, you get the government and the ATO and uh, the media and other stakeholders and all of these things come between you and the customer and you start building products and services and you, and you focus on making those products and services better and you forget about whether or not they're still solving the customer's problems. So if I can use just uh, as, as an example, again, Airbnb as an example. So Airbnb started off by providing cheap accommodation for people who didn't want to book hotel rooms. Um, but after a few years of doing that, they started thinking, what's the actual problem we're solving for customers? And so they went through this process where they analyzed what do customers actually want? And of course, somebody booking a hotel room or an Airbnb accommodation, they're not just doing it for that purpose alone. They're doing it because they're going somewhere different and they want to have, it's like Airbnb or the hotel room is part of the total travel experience. And so now Airbnb has kind of reinvented itself as providing the total travel experience. And now if you book an Airbnb property, you immediately get told, here are some other things that you can do while you're in Budapest or Barcelona or Brisbane. And then you can decide, so then Airbnb is saying, we can help you not just with this tiny little part of your journey and your experience, but we can partner with people who can help you along the way. So it's actually looking at the customer journey. Many people, many businesses go through this customer journey mapping. It's really important to think about not just the customer who you used to serve originally, but the, what's the customer journey for the, for the future customer. I was fascinated with this idea of fast, flat, and free. <laughs> Can you, you uh, yeah, share the fast, flat, and free with everyone? Okay, fast, flat, and free. So this is very broadly, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, this is one indicator that you can use. So one little arrow that's pointing in a certain direction. It doesn't explain everything, but it's quite useful in understanding big picture of where the world is going and what you should be thinking about in your business, in your leadership practice. So broadly, the world is becoming fast, flat, and free. So everything's moving faster than ever before. We are, so that's fast, flat, we're, we're breaking down hierarchies, uh, we're breaking down structures that used to, that used to exist and that used to control the way, we, um, the way we do things. And things that used to cost a lot now cost a lot less. So sometimes they're free. And technology is an enabler to all those three things. So if you say, Julian, the world is moving towards fast, flat, and free, then if we're looking at setting a strategy for our business or for our team, then I reckon the thing to look for is the exact opposite of that. What in your business or your organization is the opposite of fast, flat, and free? That's slow, bumpy, expensive. 
So if you've got anything that is like unintentionally, so let's say slow. So what, what are you doing that takes a long time? It's technical, it's complex. And um, even if it's a service, because service people are involved, so that means it's automatically slow. Um, that's ripe for disruption because somebody will come along and they'll offer a faster version of that. So fast might mean that it'll be outsourced or automated, uh, so it'll happen automatically. It might be that it gets eliminated altogether because it might be the customer does it themselves from an app. Um, so anything that is slow, somebody will find a way to make it faster. In the same way, something that's, uh, that's bumpy, which is regulated, controlled, mandated, licensed, uh, somebody will find a way to break down those, those structures and those barriers and make it flat. Um, something that's expensive, people find ways to make it free. So if you're looking for the, the threats and risks in your business, just look at everything that's slow, bumpy or expensive and assume that somebody is going to come along with a fast, flat or free alternative. You may not know how that's going to happen, but it's, but it's worthwhile thinking about the fact that it could happen. So in a previous life, I started a web design company. Um, this was in the mid-90s, so it was in the early days of the web. And uh, so I started one of Australia's first web design companies. And at the time, the sort of websites we were building for a small business, we charged roughly $5,000 and it would take about three months to build a website. And at the time, that wasn't, it wasn't super cheap, it wasn't super expensive. It was kind of what people would expect to pay. I reckon... Uh, maybe about four years ago. Um, so the web design business closed down now. And about four years ago, I was running webinars, which was called, uh, the webinar was called Build a Website in an Hour. And literally on the webinar, I would start from scratch and I would show people, I would just demonstrate building a website from scratch in an hour. And the cost of that software was about a hundred bucks. So we've gone from $5,000 in three months, that's what it used to be, to a hundred bucks in an hour. Now, our world is not moving any slower than that. And if you think about anything that you're doing that is equivalent of $5,000 in three months, imagine if somebody could do that and offer that to your customers for 100 bucks in an hour. That's the difference between slow, bumpy, expensive and fast, flat and free. You may not know how that's going to happen, but just pretend that it would happen and somebody's going to do that for you. And that's a really good way for you strategically to look at what you need to work on in your business or your organization. Yeah, you got me thinking now about, about about our business. So I might have to. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting model. I'm always a big fan of, of of frameworks, and because I think they they do help leaders uh, apply the ideas in those frameworks in a practical sense. And there was one where in here where you talk about uh, imagining the impact of outside technology and new trends and it's your replace assist elevate and leverage model i was wondering if you're able to share that one with the listeners yeah sure because what we're talking about here is that everything we talked about so far sounds great but to put it into practice there's some practical things that we need to keep in mind that we need to consider so i reckon when you're looking at anything outside and what impact it could have on you classify it into one of these four stages is it going to replace something or somebody in your organization? Is it going to assist you to do something better? Is it going to elevate what you can do? Or is it going to leverage or transform? So replace means it eliminates something. 
people, when they think about technology, that's the first place they go to. This is going to take away, this is going to take away our jobs. This is going to close down their camp- our company. And I think it's very useful to think that way. That may happen, but it's useful to think about the other things first. So the next level up is assist. So how can this help me do my job better? So I'm old enough, Julian, to remember when I was typing on a typewriter. Um, Word processors haven't helped me write, become a better writer, but it certainly assists me in the writing process. So that's an example of assist. Um, elevate is can, can this technology, can this idea, can this process take something away from me that is a bit of a pain for me so I can, it elevates me to do higher level work. Uh, so for example, with a lot of administration work now, uh, artificial intelligence can do that. So there's AI and um, that you can buy for a few bucks a month that will automatically organize your appointments for you. So if, if you email me, to, if you email me to say, I'd like to meet with you Sometime in the next couple of weeks, the, the AI software can respond on my behalf saying, um, yeah, I'm available, blah, 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 on these times. And it knows my preferences. It knows my availability. And it can have a conversation with you so that I don't need to do that or my PA doesn't need to do that. Uh, she can do high-level work. I can do high-level work. Um, and the last one, which is leverage or transform, is how could this completely uh, transform the industry? So that's where you're looking at, can we start up a startup company? That can and um, that can put us out of business. Really, if you think about that assist and elevate, how can it help you do your job better, or how can it replace a bit of the mundane work that you're doing? Uh, those are the two things that will help you decide when you see something out there as an opportunity or a threat, how you're going to deal with it. One of the models that I wanted to uh, explore is one that you talk about in your book, uh, the Pestle model, because I was actually delivering that a version of that to a leadership group the other day. So I thought it'd be really interesting if we can explore that. Yeah, sure. And look, there's nothing magic about the PESTL model. Uh, we talked earlier about scanning wider and the PESTL model just gives you a simple framework for doing that wider scanning. So PESTL is an acronym. So it's a political, environmental, social, technological, legal, and economic. So what are the political factors that might affect us in the future? What are the economic factors that might affect us in the future? And so on. It's just a really useful framework for um, guiding our thinking. So when I work with senior leadership teams, we often do this exercise where they look at things from outside their industry that could affect them in the short and long term. And sometimes, they, and I say to them, don't only look at the things that are obvious. Uh, so some of them might say, oh, Royal Commission, or change in government, or Brexit. So they're the things that they know are going to happen, but they don't look ahead so, uh, to some of the long term things. So for example, technology, uh, Elon Musk says that we're going to Mars, and uh, he wants to colonize Mars. So now that's something which has reasonable amount of hype behind it is it's long term uh, but still it's something that you might consider and then discard and not bring it into your strategic planning but just a useful way to do some to do some blue sky thinking or brainstorming in a structured way mm. and i was i was fascinated with this idea of the the delphi method are you able to uh, share what the delphi method is yeah, so if you think that the PESTL model is for you to think, for you to scan wider, the Delphi method helps you narrow it down. So the Delphi method is actually bringing in expertise. So it's, it's based on the idea that you don't have one expert anymore. It used to be you go to the boss 
And if the boss doesn't know, you go to his, and YouTube was a his, you go to his boss and they would know. Uh, but now that's not the case. So this is about, uh, it's a process for gaining consensus from people who have expertise. And it's just like, think about a spiral where you have, you start wide and then you narrow it down. So you might start off by sending out a survey to a whole bunch of stakeholders and say, what do you think the biggest issues are? Um, you narrow it down to say the top 10 and then you send out another survey um, and then you might narrow it down to specific experts for them to rate and analyze the options. And it's just, a, it's a very simple process, but it's just a simple process to narrow down uh, decision making without spending hours and hours and hours in group thinking big arguments. Now there is a place for you to have this, what I call fierce collaboration, where you bring in people and they argue their their points and they, they argue vehemently. And the only thing, I mean, arguing for their points, not for their personalities. Um, but this is another way of doing it, which helps you narrow down an idea in a very in a very efficient way. But you get the expertise from a group of people. I, I was fascinated with this idea of a personal learning network. I mean, obviously, uh, we'll, Sanjin are a training company, so we're all about everything and anything to do with, with learning and training. So what's a, what's a personal learning network that you speak about? Yeah, so let's start off by just understanding the principle that we are all responsible now for our own learning. As much as we get support from our organizations, it's very much that we're responsible for, if you like, for responsible for our own careers, which means that we need to be lifelong learners. And that means learning, relearning, unlearning, so coming back to the things that you thought you knew which aren't true anymore. Um, and that means that you create for yourself a personal learning network. And this learning network is just a fancy way of saying all the sources that you learn from. So where do you learn? Like, do you just learn randomly by what people happen to post on your social media feed? So you see what someone's posted on LinkedIn, so you click that, you read it, you learn something new, or somebody mentions a TED Talk randomly to you, so you, um, you watch that TED Talk. Those are all good things, but creating a personal learning network says that you strategically think about for yourself, how are you going to learn wider, how are you going to learn deeper and how are you going to learn further? So wider is how are you going to how are you going to broaden where you're learning from. So you learn from different sources, maybe the areas that uh, are a little bit different from your day-to-day -day work and your expertise. Deeper is understanding more about your actual expertise, and further is how you're going to learn about the future. So there may be things like you know, listening to futurist podcasts for when you're looking at further. Deeper is reading your industry. Uh, industry magazine, your industry conferences, so you, you learn what's current in the industry, and wider is then going broader, so you might be reading blogs or watch, watching random TED Talks, but subscribe to the TED, uh, TED feed, so you hear ideas from different people. So personal learning network is just creating uh, that, that set of sources that you're going to keep learning from. You encourage people to lean in, and that means that uh, when when they see an opportunity to learn and grow, they don't switch off. They lean in. Do you do you find that people are, are, are challenged by that? That a lot of leaders don't necessarily see themselves as needing to continue to learn and, and take care of these opportunities. That's right, and specifically, like I talk about lean in, particularly in the context of leaning in when you see. I'm going to say younger people, but when you see people different from you, we can look diversity in a number of different areas. When you see people doing something different, uh, and let's take this example of, let's say you've got younger people at work, so 
Gen Y, the millennials, or Gen Z, the you know, like the early 20s now, just moving into the workforce, if you see them distracted on technology at work when they're supposed to be productive, the natural tendency is to say, switch off. It's not appropriate for work. It's not something they should be doing during work time. Um, we might even block certain sites through the, the local, um, through our corporate intranet, through the Wi-Fi, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's telling them to switch off. But you could take the opposite approach and lean in and say, what are you doing? Teach me what's happening. Teach me how you're using this and how it's working for you. And uh, the, the two extremes, uh, one is where you've got this, this stubborn resistance and you just say switch off everything. And the other one is that unhealthy obsession where people are really are distracted and unproductive and it's not useful for them. Uh, but this is, this is a brand where you can both engage in some active learning. So you learn from them, you lean in and learn from them, and they get the chance to share some of the ideas with you, and they learn from you, from your greater experience and wisdom and judgment as well. So, yep, lean in wherever you can, rather than have that automatic tendency to switch off. Yeah, there, there, there was a part in the book that really resonated with me, which was this idea of thought leadership. And I think it resonated with me because my view, or I'm, 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 I'm coming to the view that uh, not enough leaders are sharing their own ideas and, and adding value. There tends to be a lot of, a lot of people that are uh, you know, trainers and, and their businesses are about sharing ideas, but there's not a lot of leaders who are in the field that are sharing their ideas and adding value. And so I'm curious to how we can tie that into this idea that you speak about in thought leadership. Yeah, so the World Economic Forum, they have they published a report about the future of jobs and the future of the, the skills that we need for the future. And one of the top five skills they identified for Australia, but broadly, globally as well, is a skill called leadership and social influence. So you go, oh, yeah, okay, if we know that leadership is a really important skill, but I really like that they're calling it leadership and social influence. So now you're not only you're not recognized for a leader only by what's on your business card, whether your hair's gray, whether you have the corner office, how old you are. You're based on how influential you are. So people looking for leaders who are influencers and they want people they can follow because they are and because they they have authority rather than because they are an because they are an authority rather than because they have authority. And that means that you are sharing um unique ideas so you're sharing your own ideas you're you're looking at what's happening in the world you're taking data and stories and then you're making a point with them and telling people this is what it means or here's what you can do with this and that's the simplest way of creating thought leadership you look for some content out in the world and it might be some research it might be some statistic or it might be a story you create and you tell people the point of that story and then you tell them here's what it means or here's what you can do as a result of it that simple formula if you follow that and you share that with the world that's how you start generating thought leadership and it's becoming commonly agreed i suppose that diversity is is a key part of business success now and that means you know diversity you know of gender of thought of experience diversity from every angle you can imagine it. Why do you think diversity is such an important aspect of how we deal with disruption and change? 
Yeah, that, there's no question about it. The research is in that diversity is not just a feel-good idea, but it's a key competitive advantage. And and people are talking a lot about, but not just diversity, but about diversity and inclusion, so D&I. And, you know, the difference between them is diversity is like having a whole bunch of textures in your pack and inclusion is actually using them all when you're creating something. So that combination has been shown to have a... a it does have a competitive advantage. So research done by EY and Deloitte shows that companies, diverse companies have a, a better bottom line. And um, there's some other research that shows that when you've got inclusive teams, people are happier, they're more productive, they're more likely to stay. So there's, there's really strong reasons for that. And when you think about it, it's not that surprising because if you go back to something we spoke about earlier, Julian, that the expertise that got us here isn't going to take us to where we want to go, then having that diversity means that you're going to get ideas from different people with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, and that can only be good for you because you know you're not going down this narrow path based on what used to work in the past. You're opening yourself up to opportunities to have opportunities to get ideas from a diverse range of people. And that's the good thing. And that's why uh, diverse organizations that actually have that inclusivity as well, uh, they're the ones who are going to be more successful in the future. It just makes sense when you think about it from that viewpoint. Mm. I'm very passionate about mentoring. It's something which I, I strongly believe in. I've had some wonderful mentors in, in, in my career and I mentor people as well. But you talk about reverse mentoring. So let's talk about that, yeah, reverse so this, mentoring. Yeah. So reverse mentoring is, is like, I, I think it's upping the ante on mentoring. So I love mentoring as well. And reverse mentoring, in fact, we touched on this when, when we we're talking about leaning in. So reverse mentoring is the idea that now the more junior person is the mentor rather than the more senior person. So instead of the senior person sharing their wisdom and their experience, the more junior person shares their, they've got different experience and different expertise, but really different perspective as well. So one of my clients uh, who's now retired, but she was the, the CEO, Janet Wilson, the CEO of a law firm in Brisbane, and she used to do this. So every few months she would select somebody younger in her organization and they would be her mentor. And younger means either younger in age or younger in the law, so a recent graduate, or younger in the firm, so somebody who was uh, recently employed, because she valued having their different perspective and their uh, different insights. And so again, as a leader, it takes a little bit of humility to do that, but it also requires setting up permission for that younger person, uh, the more junior person, to feel free to express what they, you know, whatever they want to sh uh, share uh, without any fear of being penalized for it. But that reverse mentoring, you just get some great perspectives because um, you do have people with different ideas. And the obvious one is technology, but you can go beyond that. What do people think about you know, consumer, uh, consumer buying patterns? What do they think about same-sex marriage? What do they think about saving for retirement? any of these things that could have an impact on your business, you've already got those skills and talents of people who know that. You don't have to set up a, a focus group. You've got those people in your team already. Um, just tap into them. Make them your mentors rather than the other way around. I think chapter six was my favorite because it speaks to all things customers, something I obsess over a lot. And I wanted to explore a, a couple of ideas here where you – Talk about this idea of bring your customers inside and involve them earlier in your business. How do we do that? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of talk now, of course, about we've gone from customer satisfaction to now customer experiences, the whole idea of CX and how do we create a great experience for our customers. But still, what we're doing is we're still treating them at arm's length. And we're saying, you're our customers, we're going to create an experience for you. And then we can create the, a better experience than our competitors, so you'll come to us. Now, I, I think of the difference in Google and the way that they they think about their customers billion. And I know this is a little bit of an emotional topic when people talk about Apple versus Google, but if you just take away the emotion from it, if you think both of those companies are customer obsessed, but they've got different philosophies. So Apple's philosophy is we're really smart, we know what's best for you. And they do create beautiful products. Contrast that with Google, who says, you're really smart, you know what's best for you. And they provide their customers and their device manufacturers more control over their devices. And uh, Google has 80% plus of the world's smartphone market, um, and that's growing. And I reckon one of the reasons is because of that. They want their customers to act like partners in the business uh, and they give them more control, e even though that means that sometimes they have, that the device is a bit more clunky, the interfaces aren't as consistent, but customers want to be involved. And if you bring them in, if you bring them into your business and you treat them as partners sitting on the same side of the table as you, then they can provide really valuable insights into your business and they like it more. They feel more valued because they've been involved in the process of creating that experience for themselves. And also you, you, you suggest about that we, uh, we need to get more customer feedback and we need to ask for their opinion. I think a lot of organisations might be a bit scared to do that. Yeah, and they're going to be even more scared when I tell them the way they should do it because <laughs> uh, most people, uh, yeah, and you, and you see this all the time. So if you go and stay at a hotel or you go to a restaurant or you have some sort of experience where the, um, the organization, the business has the opportunity to get your phone number or typically an email address, they will send you either the day after or a couple of days after, they will ask you to fill in a, you know, how, how do we do? They'll send you a feedback survey and it's now completely automated. It's easy for them to do, but they're doing it at the wrong point. They're doing it at the end of the service. So, they, yeah, you can provide some feedback saying this didn't work or, you know, we want a non-smoking room and we didn't get it or whatever. But uh, if you take the time to provide that feedback, and most people don't, um, if you take the time to provide that feedback, it only helps the organization. It only helps that business. And, yeah, they might say to you, I'll come back and stay next time and we'll have the problem fixed. But you actually wanted the problem fixed earlier. So, that feedback, absolutely. So I'll make a contrast between reviews, which are what you do after the process, um, and feedback, which you ask for during the process. So the more you can, the more opportunities you give customers for feedback during the process, the better. Now, that means two things. First of all, you can't be intrusive, so you don't want to be ringing up um, your guests who are staying in the hotel room every day to find out if everything's okay. But also, it gives it, you have to take the responsibility that if they if they tell you something's wrong, you've got to be willing to fix it or you'd be willing to act on it at least. Um, but that's the, way you, that's the way you create a better experience. You don't wait till afterwards and ask them, how do we do? And by the way, can you give us a rating on TripAdvisor? Um, you do it during the process so you can actually create, um, you have to genuinely interest in changing it and creating a better experience for your customers. You talk about this idea of asking the world. When you say that, how, how do you mean ask the world? 
Yeah, so, so very broadly speaking, most businesses um, are very internally focused, or at least they, they think about um, the people who can do the work are the people within the business. So it's the staff, they, have, they might have strong relationships with key suppliers and contractors and so on, but typically it's a very small group of people who are on this journey to provide solutions for their customers. Now, I've already mentioned, we've just talked about the idea that you can bring your customers in as well, but you can go much further than that as well. So there are now new opportunities for you to reach out further than just your little business and your customers. You can do outsourcing, you can do crowdsourcing, you can ask your social networks uh, for help. And that technology has made that easy now. It wasn't easy in the past. It just wasn't feasible to be able to do that. But now you can do some of those things and smart, savvy businesses are doing exactly that. Especially if you think about startup businesses, they don't necessarily have a lot of assets, resources, they're not cash rich. So they have to look at clever ways to get work done. So they will use outsourcing a lot. They will use crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing is just the idea that you offer a prize to somebody who can solve a problem for you and uh, that's all you pay. You pay the winner and maybe a few other people along the way, like uh, runners up, but that's it. It's a cheap way to get problems solved, but it taps into expertise from outside because when you think about it, Julian, uh, what are the chances that the best people to solve a problem for your customers happen to be the people who are sitting in your office who you've employed um, to work on a particular project? Um, definitely better people out there in the world. It's just that you may not be thinking about reaching out to them. And that's all it means. That's asking the world means looking beyond your four walls or your four virtual walls and looking beyond that and finding expertise from outside. Mm. Yeah, I think that's where one of the, the proliferation in, in, you know, things like Airtasker and Upwork and Freelancer, where all those uh, experts are easily available, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. But it does require a shift in mindset mm. so in, in two areas. So one is that you may have people in your legal or HR team who have very strict rules about how work gets done. And uh, you may have to fight on behalf of getting in uh, work from outside and asking the world for them to be able to do these loose um, individual task-oriented jobs rather than setting up strong relationships with formal contracts. The second thing is that if you're a leader or a manager, you just got to get used to the idea of out, of measuring output, not input, measuring results rather than process. Because if you've got the people in your office, particularly if they are physically in your office, you know what time they're coming in the morning and you know if they're coming in late or they're leaving early. You know if they hang around and spend too long at lunch or they spend all their time gossiping. Um, but if you're talking about using these tools like outsourcing and crowdsourcing, you can't see what people are doing. So you've got to have the mindset that says, I only care about the results. And if you deliver the results, I don't care how long you took, how you did the work, um, whether you outsourced it to somebody else, as long as I get the results. And it's not a mindset that a lot of leaders and managers can shift easily. And mm. the more experienced you are, the harder it can become sometimes. Yeah. 90-day projects. I was interested uh, yeah. in all that, 90-day projects. Yeah, look, and this is like a world is just moving so fast now that setting 12-month goals just aren't practical. Because 12 months is a long time, so it's very hard to plan ahead. You don't know what to do in week one or week two or week 
17 when you're sitting at 12-month goal. But the more important reason is that the world changes so fast that the goal you set on the 1st of January by 1st of January next year, it's just no longer relevant. And there's so many goals that people set that the world changes so fast. You can't do that. So I reckon you should do a 90-day project instead. Um, so do four a year, so three months at a time. So 90 days is three months, 12 weeks, um, if you'd like to think of it those ways, uh, that, that way, or, or 90 days. So when you think about a 12-week project, it's pretty easy to clearly define it and to plan it out. You can set up a, a Excel spreadsheet or you can set up a bulletin board that says on week one, we'll do this, week two, and you can set it all up for the next 12 weeks. And the thing is that you know you can't mess around in weeks one and two because you've used up you know, two out of your 12 weeks if you waste that time. Whereas if you're using up two of your 52 weeks, quite often that, that's what happens. There's so much wasted time. To set a 90-day project instead of a 12-month goal, you might still have, um, for your year, you might have a theme that you want to achieve these things, but um, set them up as four consecutive 90-day projects. Hmm. And you used a phrase that I, I hadn't heard before um, as we get towards the end of the, in the interview, this idea of mental contrasting. And I thought that might be useful to, to share with the listeners. Yeah, so mental contrasting, another way of thinking about this is to be a realistic optimist. So when you set up your 90-day projects, you should definitely set stretch goals in that time. So it shouldn't be something that's really easy to achieve. It should be something that's a bit of a stretch in that 90 days. So you're being optimistic, but you're also being realistic about problems and obstacles and traps and uh, you know, things that get in the way of you achieving that. So mental contrasting is a term from psychology where the research shows that the, the old way of goal setting was to say, imagine your goal and then imagine what life would be like when you've achieved that goal, how much happier, sexier, better um, you would be for achieving that goal. Now, the research shows that that tends to push your mind. If you imagine that you've already achieved that goal, your, your brain goes up. Oh, I can tick that box. I don't need to think about that anymore. Whereas mental contrasting says, don't only think about what might go right, but think about what might go wrong as well. So this is really useful process called a, a pre-mortem, which some Harvard researchers created where like a post-mortem in, in healthcare, in surgery is where the patient dies and then the surgeon and the team get together to figure out what went wrong. The pre-mortem is you imagine at the end of your 90 days that you failed and then you and your team say, why did we fail? And then you imagine all the things that could go wrong. And then because you're only imagining, you can now put things into place to, to avoid those obstacles. So that's the idea of the mental contrasting is you don't only think about what might go right, but you're realistic and you think about what might go wrong as well. And, and almost at the very end of the book, you talk about this idea of habits. And I know there's a, there's a line of thought sort of going around at the moment that you know habits are, are, are crucial to people's success so uh, what, what should we do about habits yes again the, the idea behind this is that if you can create positive habits they absolutely are uh, useful for your success and if you're caught up in negative habits they can they can really derail and sabotage your success as well and the, the idea here is that you don't want to have to constantly work really hard to get things done so as an example for myself i really enjoy um, 
fitness and exercise. I'm not a gym junkie by, by any standards, uh, but I and my partner, Nikki, so it's a really good thing that she's into this as well. Um, we like exercising. So for us, for me this morning, I went for a 6K run because it's nice sunny weather. It's a bit cool, but sunny weather. And doing that run in the morning gets my day off to a good start. If I didn't do it, I'd actually feel worse. As worse for most people, it's not that. So with fitness, they haven't quite got to that point. For them, it's difficult. So they have to push themselves. They have to use willpower to motivate themselves to do that. Whereas if you can make it a habit, if it becomes standard part of your procedure, then you don't have to think about it. The nice thing about habits is they happen on autopilot. You don't have to deliberately say, I'm going to go for a run this morning. You don't have to deliberately say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes I'm going to find 15 minutes to do some learning from our personal learning network. You might have made it a habit. If you make it a habit, it happens automatically. So I'm, I'm always curious about the books or people that inspire the people that I have on the show. So are there any books or people that inspire you? You know, like most people expect that uh, when they ask me about interesting books that I'm going to talk about books around technology, like what's happening with the future of artificial intelligence and uh, other technology things, but actually more interested in the way that people think. The books that are around leadership and change and leading through change are the ones that I gravitate towards the most. So one of the ones that is, is not that it's not brand new now, but a book that I, that I recently reread is a book Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. And they talk about the science behind decision making. And I find that fascinating because being ready for the future is all about how you can make smart decisions and how you can make smarter decisions faster. So understanding that Every moment of our lives, we're making we're making decisions, and a decision that you make, you could could be a sliding doors moment, where you go down one path or the other, and it really depends on the decision you make. So that's that's the sort of book that I like reading because, uh, uh, first of all, I like stuff that's evidence based, and then I like the stuff that you know, talks about how people think and they operate. And if people want to find out more about you and the types of work that you do, where should they go? Yeah, th thanks, Julian. So I do a lot of keynote speaking at conferences. I do strategic planning um, with with senior leaders and, and also the book. Uh, so everything's on my website. And probably the easiest way to find me based on the what we've been talking about today is to go to disruptionbydesign.com. It'll go to my website and you can look up the other services I do as well. And we can, of course, find out more about the book. All right. And uh, any last words on change and leadership? Yeah, so I think that, uh, so in fact, I end the book with this, um, with this quotation as well, because uh, as I said, like change change and innovation and disruption are exactly the same thing because innovation, when you make the change happen, disruption happens to you. And Jack Welch, who was the former CEO of General, General Electric, he said this about change. He said, if the rate of change on the outside is greater than the rate of change on the inside, then the end is near. So that's why I think, yeah, don't wait for change to happen to you. Um, create disruption, disrupt yourself by design. Well, on that note, Gihan Pereira, thank you so much for being on the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Thanks very much, Julian. I really enjoyed it. Well, that wraps up episode 91 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another great author interview episode for you. I would like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. 
tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or even tell us what sort of content you'd like us to put together. If you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. really does help us build awareness of the podcast and get our message out there. Next week's episode, we have another great business leader interview episode for you, where I introduce David Sharrock, who is the managing principal of Sharrock Pittman Legal. It's another great interview. Until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.